open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, we're continuing, as you know, in our series, The New Man in Christ. The New Man in Christ. And you know that over the process of the last several weeks, we have been talking about those things which characterize us as Christians. Those things which characterize us as new men, new women in Christ. And we've been talking about this new man, and we, I trust, have been sharing with you some things that you might not have readily recognized before in your own reading of Colossians chapter 3, and it's been an exciting study for all of us as we've pursued what it means to be a part of the new humanity in Christ. What is God doing as he translates us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? What is it now that characterizes us as new Christians? And you know that from our study in Colossians 3, we have talked about the characteristics of the new man. What are the habits that are now being formed in us as we embark upon this new relationship with Jesus Christ? What should characterize us? What are we all about as new Christians? What are we all about as those who have embarked upon this Christian life, this pilgrim's progress, as we've talked about. And we've noticed that in Colossians 3, the very first thing that the Apostle Paul tells us is that the new man is characterized by pursuing heavenly things. Colossians 3, verse 1. He says there, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. And we saw in great detail, as you know, that the first commodity that characterizes the new man in Christ, anyone who is a Christian, in addition, obviously, to the corporate dynamic that is true of all believers as they form together this new man, is that they are continually, as a habit form in their life, pursuing heavenly things. That's what, that is what characterizes believers. We are on a path of pursuit of the things that are spiritual. Not the things that are earthly, but the things that are spiritual in nature. We are not now earthbound in the sense as we were when we were outside of Christ, only pursuing those things that were to our own pleasure, only pursuing those things that were to our own satisfaction, our own glory, but now being translated into a new realm of existence, the new man in Christ, we are pursuing spiritual realities. We are characterized, we are marked, as new people in Christ by what we pursue. We pursue heavenly things. That's the first thing he tells us that we are characterized by as the new man in Christ. Secondly, the second thing he tells us is that we as new men, new women in Christ, are also totally preoccupied with heavenly things. See it there in verse 1 again? It says that we are to keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind, verse 2, on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So the first thing he says is that we are characterized by a continual pursuit of heavenly things, and secondly, we are also totally preoccupied 
with those heavenly realities. Set your mind, he says, continually on heavenly things. You as a Christian ought to be preoccupied with those things that have to do with God and his world, God and his dominion, God and his domain. That is what sets Christians apart from non-Christians. Non-Christians are those who, Paul says, are characterized by earthly things. They are setting their minds on the things that are on earth. Conversely, those who are of the spiritual dimension, those who are the new humanity in Christ, we set our minds on the things above. And he says, of course, the reason why we do such things is because we have died. We have experienced a co-death, verse 1, a co-resurrection with Jesus Christ. We are identified completely with him in his death and resurrection. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. There is secrecy there. There is safety there. There is an assurance that we, with Christ, will be one day revealed in glory. And he says that is true of you. If you name the name of Christ, if you are truly his, then you will be marked in your life as a habit, as a characteristic part of your nature, a pursuing of heavenly things, and even in your mind a preoccupation with heavenly things. And we learned that in great detail. And then, you know, I turned a little bit of a corner in verse 5 because I kept saying, yeah, but Lance, you've never told us exactly what those heavenly things are and you really haven't told us what those earthly things are and Paul does that for us in verse 5. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. First thing Paul does is say that the earthly things that all of us should put to death is listed there in verse 5. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. He even lists a few other earthly things that we should lay aside Verse 8 says we should put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. We should not lie to one another. Verse 9, why? Because we are characterized as new men in Christ. We cannot do these things. We must not do these things anymore as the characteristic part of our nature, our life, our man, because we have been translated out of that realm. We can't be doing these things. We can't be named among them as the Gentiles do, as the pagan people do, as the non-Christians, because we are new people. Our nature has been changed. The reality of our spiritual condition has been changed. Constitutionally, we are new people. We aren't the same people that we once were. So he says, you need to, and that was our third point that we discussed last time, put to death earthly things. Pursue heavenly things, be preoccupied with heavenly things, and thirdly, put to death earthly things. The things that used to mark us, we need to kill. 
mortify, put to death. Now, you say, that's negative. Yes, it is. It's very negative. Last week was, in a sense, a very negative message. Why? Because those things which used to characterize pagan people, not just pagan people in the day that Paul wrote, but our day as well, it is true, it is reality, it is a fact that people, even today, just as in his day, they are unmistakably involved in these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech. It's true. It's reality. It's a part of life. It's a part of the fall of man. And were I to gloss over these things, I would not be the kind of Bible teacher that you desperately need. You need to hear these things. I need to hear these things. We need to know those things for which we have been delivered. And the positive side, the positive message, it also will come. There are things that we are to put on as well as we will continually study in this section of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. You say, what are those? What are those heavenly things that we're supposed to pursue, that we're to be preoccupied with, that we're to put on? Well, he begins to tell us about those things in verse 12. He says, and so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. See the corporate dynamic there? We are one body in Christ. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And you can readily see from verses 12 to 17, that's the positive. That's the positive side of the Christian message. That's the positive nature for that we have been transformed. We are to be marked out not only for what we have put to death, for what we have put off, but also for that which we have put on. And you would know as well as I, if you are a Christian, that you could not have lived in the things that Paul mentions in verses 12 to 17 on your own, in your own strength as a non-Christian. Absolutely impossible. Oh, you may have had some degree of love. You may have had some degree of compassion or kindness or humility. But all of those things did not merit us anything in our relationship to God. And whatever we did do that was kind or nice or gentle or patient, or patient was only done in relationship to what we ourselves could receive. It was totally self-focused. Now, however... What we are marked by, what we are characterized by, as Paul says in verses 12 to 17, is other-centeredness, selflessness, what we are doing to others and for others. And it is because we have been chosen of God and it is because we are holy and beloved. 
And those things we will get to in due time. So yes, the message is somewhat negative, that which we have been translated out of, and that which we must kill every day in our lives, and that also which we must put on. And that will be an exciting study as we go through verses 12 to 17 to see those virtues that we are to put on, those things that we are to be characterized by in our daily living. But now for this morning, to finish our study of verses 5 to 7, we need to center in on, once again, the negative aspects. The virtues are listed in verses 12 to 17, the vices are what we are centering in on this morning. The very vices that should not be a characteristic part of our life. If they are, then we never have become Christians. Why? Because if you are characterized by them, if there is an unbroken pattern of these vices that are listed by Paul in verses 5 to 7 and 8 and following, then you are not really a Christian. Why? Because... If you have seen a broken pattern of these things in your life, if you were once characterized by them and yet now you are not characterized by them, although you may occasionally fall into a sin such as is listed there, that means that there is some break. That means that there is some pattern that has been broken in your life and that can only come as a result of what God has done in Christ on your behalf because none of us can break that pattern on our own. If that pattern has been broken, it is only because the grace of God has come crashing into our life to deliver us out of being characterized by these very things. Now it is true that Christians sometimes do these things, but Christians are not marked by these things. They are not a pattern in their life. They are not a characteristic part of a Christian's life. And that's the line of demarcation. Ask yourself this question. Are these things that are listed by Paul there in verse 5 a characteristic part of my life? Are they a part of an unbroken pattern from the time that I understood such things and began to live in them until now? And if it has been an unbroken pattern, then you are not a part of the new humanity in Christ. Simple as that. All of the if statements by Paul, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, if these things are true of you, then you are not going to be doing these things. But if you are doing these things, then it is not true of you that you are a part of the new humanity in Christ. It's as simple as that. That's why the gospel, when it's presented in one sense, is presented so simply. If you are a Christian, this is what your life is going to be like. If you are not a Christian, this is what your life is going to be like. In fact, we could actually outline this text of Scripture by Paul in that way. Christians are marked by pursuing heavenly things, by being preoccupied with heavenly realities, by putting to death all of the things that used to characterize them. Non-Christians don't do that. They are continually pursuing earthly things. They are totally preoccupied with themselves and what they can get out of life and how they can be satisfied, almost like what is said in Ecclesiastes, that they are pursuing all of the material issues of life, all of the things that would make them happy, fulfilled, joyful, etc. If that's what they are preoccupied with and if they are not putting to death 
these earthly things from their life, if they're not eradicating them out of their life and out of their existence, then they're not a Christian. That's as simple as that. You could say in one sense that almost every passage that at least Paul and the Apostle John and Peter and many other Bible writers pen, it will be that clear. This is what marks Christians. This is what marks non-Christians. This is the line of demarcation. Now, I think sometimes we present, either in Bible teaching or the presentation of the gospel, that which is hard and confusing for people to understand because we don't make the issues of the spiritual life absolutely clear for people to understand. If you are living in an unbroken pattern of behavior, the list of vices that Paul has in this section of Scripture, then you are not a Christian. Simple as that. But if you are a person who has seen this pattern of behavior broken, if you are characterized by a righteousness which you could not derive on your own, which was derived for you on the basis of faith, and that faith being granted to you by God on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then you will see a brokenness in the pattern of that very kind of behavior. And so every one of us, when we look in the mirror, when we think about our life, we need to ask ourselves those very questions. Is this a pattern in my life? Is this not a pattern in my life? What marks me? What characterizes me? And as I said last week, this is Paul at his practical, ethical finest. Because when he gets in these sections of Scripture, it's not hard to understand. It's not hard to see where he's going. He says, those who are the new man in Christ are preoccupied, are pursuing, are putting to death these things which mark our earth-bound existence. And those people who are a part of the new man, they're putting on all of those virtues that could not be gained except by the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And see, our doctrine of salvation and our doctrine of sanctification says that if you have become a Christian, it won't be just by your profession verbally of faith in Jesus Christ. It'll be because your person is actually changed. Your lifestyle, the habits of your existence, they will be changed. That's why this lordship debate is so interesting to me and in one sense tragic because how could it be that in the church of Jesus Christ we could have someone as a Bible teacher or as a supposed scholar who says that you can come to faith in Jesus Christ and yet your life may not change how can that be so I'm not sure that they maybe have even read what Paul says here in Colossians 3 put off these things put on these things if you have put off this is what your life will be like if you have put on this is what your life will be like simple as that and for us to say that we have submitted ourselves to Jesus Christ as Lord as Lord of our life then it will be very manifest what that Lordship will manifest and reveal and what will it manifest and reveal it will it will reveal for us a, a holy nature a compassion, a kindness, a humility, a gentleness, and a patience, a bearing with one another, and a forgiving one another. If you were to come to me and say, here's my problem. I don't believe I have ever truly forgiven anyone. I don't believe I have ever truly 
had manifest in my life a compassion and a kindness and a humility that I believe was genuine. My response, you are not a part of the new man in Christ. And the injunction for you would be that you must see yourself as wretched, as blind, as naked, and you must put off these things by faith and repentance in order for you to come to a genuine knowledge and intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Lord of our lives, He will manifest His righteous character in and through our lives as we live obediently. If, however, you have done that, then the very characteristic part of your life is that you will be pursuing heavenly things, you will be preoccupied with these heavenly realities, and you will, as a characteristic part of your nature, be putting to death the things that used to characterize you. And you remember last week we talked about those very vices that Paul gives in verse 5? It, it's a hideous list, isn't it? It's hideous. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And you know that we talked about those things in detail. What did we say about them? Well, first of all, we said that immorality is porneia, sexual sin. And it is a sexual sin that is sin of any kind. Any kind of sexual perversion, including, by the way, sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage because that is expressly forbidden by God. And, of course, that is one of the most characteristic sins of our time, is it not? You can't turn on the television, you can't listen to, to radio, you can't read magazines, you can't look at billboards, you can't have conversations with non-Christians without the subject of sexual sins somehow moving its way into the conversation. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knowing the times, both present and future, has in his list of vices here as the very first sin to be put to death, immorality, sexual sin, porneia. The word I mentioned last week, that is the word we get pornography from. Sexual sin, any kind of sexual sin. And then Paul gives a, another word, impurity. And I mentioned to you last time that it was a moral impurity. It was another, in a sense, explanation of porneia, of immorality, impurity, impurity with regard to my mind and impurity with regard to my conduct. And you know that I mentioned to you last time that it could be characterized as deeds resulting from a mind full of sensuality and lust. And then thirdly, we saw in detail the word passion. And I mentioned to you the word pathos. That's the Greek term for which passion in your English Bible is translated pathos. Sometimes in our culture, pathos is used as a good word. When you say there was great pathos in his voice, you would say there was great passion in his voice. But here, clearly in Paul's list of vices, passion is used from an evil viewpoint. Passion, sexual craving, sexual passion, lust, inordinate affection, erotic desires, unrestrained. And Paul says, listen, Colossians, and I say to us, listen, Grace Church people, these things cannot, they must not characterize believers in Jesus Christ. Because if they do, 
if it is an unbroken pattern in our lives, then it proves that we have never died with Christ, we've never been resurrected with him, we are not waiting for him to be revealed in glory, and we are not therefore putting to death these evil things from our members, from our body, from our mind. It isn't true of us. And if it isn't true of us, we're not a part of the new man in Christ. But if we are, if we are a part of the new man, then what characterizes us is a putting away of those things, a putting to death of those things, a killing of those things. That's what he literally means there in verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. That's another way of saying kill, mortify, put to death, put them away, put them off from you. Don't be characterized by them. Don't be characterized by pornea, by immorality, by sexual sin of any kind. However it manifests itself, whether it manifests itself in action or whether it manifests itself in attitude. And then he says, don't let impurity be a part of your life. If it arises in you for some strange reason as the new man in Christ, kill it. Put it to death. And if for some reason passion wells up within you, evil desire, sexual craving, erotic lust, kill it. Put it to death. Don't allow it to dominate you at all. Romans 1.26, I believe I mentioned to you last time. 1 Thessalonians 4.5 also mentions that idea of passion. Put it away from you. And you know in the context of Romans 1, that is what characterizes non-Christian people. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Passion is a part of their daily existence. Passion gone berserk. And then he mentions evil desire. We're just re reviewing evil desire, a longing, a debased passion, foul desires is the way it could be translated. And again, it has to do with sexual conduct. And it isn't strange that Paul mentions out of the first five things that which has reference to our sexual conduct. Why? Because it was certainly true of the time in which he lived and it is, if not more true, in the time in which we live. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. I mentioned to you last time that there is a word that we should use these days, but we don't often. It's the word concupiscence. Concupiscence. And it really wraps up all of these four things that he has in his list of vices. It's the idea of any kind of behavior that is evil, that is wicked, that is not to be characterized for the new man in Christ. Evil desires. And beloved, we should not at all as a church body be characterized by these things if for one reason alone, one reason, and that is this, that we have people all around us who are looking at our lives, do we not? We have people who are looking at us at work, at home. We have people who know us to some degree. Maybe they don't know all of our thoughts and all about us. Maybe they don't know all that we think and all that we do, but they see some things. And if they see some things that they also are doing as an unbroken pattern in their life, then what are they going to say about our Christianity? But they may take a giant leap. They may say, well, since I saw you do that and it was a one-time thing for you, that is what characterizes you and you're no different from me. And you could say, well, that's not true. That's not true. I don't, I am not characterized by these things. But here is what is also true. 
I am blunting my message of Christianity in that person's life if I am doing those things to any degree, to any degree, a one-time thing or otherwise. I cannot be characterized by these things because I have a testimony at stake. Can you imagine what the testimony of Christ would be in this very wicked world if Christians were so separated from sin, were so longing for righteousness and holiness that there was a tremendous difference between Christians and non-Christians in the mind of the non-Christian. Boy, what a, what a turnaround the church would have in our society alone. Forget the holiness that would be marked by the church in and of itself within the body, in the four walls of the church itself, or in Bible studies, or in relationships in general. Forget that. What would the testimony be if we were characterized by a righteousness that was so marked by its contrast for our society and our world in general? I believe what would happen, of course, is that we would not be maligned as much as we are. We would not have so many people saying, the Jim Bakers, the Jimmy Swaggerts, you're all like them. And of course, they group us all in the same kind of grouping because they profess Christ, we profess Christ. Non-Christians don't understand the difference, by and large. And so what do we say about that? My response generally is, you look at their lifestyle. Look at the Jim Bakers. Look at the Jimmy Swaggerts. What are they involved in? And if they are involved in immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, monetary value of all of the riches uh, and cares of this world, then that does not characterize them as the new man in Christ. And I, as much as I can, as much as is within me, when I talk to individuals or groups, I say, just look at their lives. Just look at it. And if it does not characterize itself as a life of righteousness and holiness, guess what? Guess what? They aren't a part of the new man in Christ. And it's not Lance Quinn saying that. It's not a Bible teacher saying that. It's not a preacher saying that. It is the Word of God and its testimony saying that. Why? Because the Word of God clearly says you cannot be manifesting your life in an unbroken pattern in these ways. If you are, you're not a part of the new humanity. And I say, look at it. Look at your lives. We ought to be so different from the world that we are manifestly different, characteristically different, so that when people see us, they say, what is it about you? What is it about your life? You seem to be different. You handle tragedy different. You handle your life differently. You handle all of the things. You handle temptation differently. You handle your money differently. You handle your family differently. I mean, every time I watch a sports event or something and I hear some non-Christian person talking about their emphasis on their family, I say, well, that's at least better than someone who isn't doing that. But how much more effective would it, would it be if a Christian would get up and say, my family is important, Jesus Christ is important, and I don't want the big contract. All I want is the money that is necessary for me to, to support my family. I don't need the millions. Or someone who would get up and say, if I'm going to have the contract that's worth millions, I'm going to take all of the money that I don't necessarily need and I'm going to give it to my local church. Forget the charities. I'm going to give it to where I know the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. Well, what a testimony. What a difference that would make. 
They would think, of course, that you're an alien from Mars. That would certainly be true. But you would be marked by your contrast, would you not? You would be saying to a watching world, money is not my main importance in life. It isn't. My family is only a vehicle so that together we can form a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ so that we can make a difference in this world. If we are to be characterized by, things, by these things, beloved, we must put them to death. And if it sounds like I'm preaching, I am. Because if we were to turn this around, even one church, one church with the kind of visibility and the kind of ministry that we have here at Grace Church, what a difference we would make in our society. Los Angeles, in our own families, we are not going to be characterized by these things. And I think last time we left off with that fifth in that list of vices that Paul gives, and that's greed, which amounts to idolatry. You remember I said to you that that word greed is the word for an emphasis on material things. An emphasis on material things. Now it could, of course, have reference to sexual sin as the other four words that are mentioned there, but I think it doesn't in this context. I think it's just a wrap-up term that Paul is using to, to, to characterize that which people pursue as a consistent part of their life. I mean, when Paul sits down to pen these words, he will say to himself, what are those things which I believe characterize people in general, non-Christians, pagan people, and certainly greed, which of course amounts to idolatry, has got to be at the top of that list. It's true in our society. It was true in his as well. And you remember I said to you that this word greed and this phrase greed which amounts to idolatry has an article in it. It's not contained in your English Bible, but it means and the greed which means that this is uh, an entity which could characterize all of this list. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and the greed which is known to all which amounts to the worship of self what he's saying. Either a greed which amounts to idolatry, don't covet your neighbor's wife if it is a sexual context, or greed, i.e. the pursuing of material goods, money, or whatever, which amounts to the worship of yourself, which is exactly opposite of the worship of God. That's his point. That's his point. I said to you last time that the psalmist prays in Psalm 119.36 that he be delivered from greed. Lord, deliver me from that. Don't let me be characterized by that which is characteristic of the world. Put it off from me. Don't allow it to be a part of my life at all. O'Brien says its presence, along with other kinds of wickedness, is evidence, according to Paul, of the power of sin in the ravaging of human relationships and a sign that God has given men and women over to a depraved mind. You see, that's how much these things characterize non-Christians, to the degree that their entire mind is a pursuing of these things, a preoccupation with these things. And this little phrase here could possibly be translated greed which by its very nature is idolatry. 
It is the opposite of God worship. It's self-worship. It's money worship. You know, out of the entire list of comparisons that Jesus ever gave regarding the worship of God, he could have said, don't worship sex, don't worship this, don't worship that. He could have used anything that he wanted to use, but he knew that the heart of man was going to be this. You worship money, you will not worship God. If you worship mammon, you will not be a worshiper of God. If you worship God, you will not be a worshiper of money, mammon. That's what he says, the utter contrast. Here is what everyone will worship. They will either worship money or they will worship God. And he puts it in a complete contrast. We should not be characterized by these things. And he groups all of these vices together, these list of five words, and he says, you must kill these things because they are a part of the old life. The old life. That's what you used to be. But you can't be that anymore because you've been changed. He, he gives a basis and a motivation. And what is that basis and motivation? Look at verse 6. For is, it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. You know what Paul is saying? Paul is saying these are things, these list of vices, these five realities... Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is self-worship, these things are specifically what God has designed for His wrath to punish. You cannot be characterized by these things because God has set on a course of unmistakable force His wrath and He will one day destroy these things. No Christian ought to be involved in these things because God by His very nature says, I've come to destroy these things forever. I've come to punish those who are involved in them. And that can't be characteristic of Christians, right? Christians have been delivered from the wrath to come. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Christians aren't those kinds of people anymore, so therefore the wrath of God will not come upon them. You see the logic? The logic is, if you've been delivered from those things, you can't be characterized by them because those who are characterized by them, the wrath of God will come. God will punish not only those sins, but those people who commit those sins because sins are never divorced from people. He will, on account of his wrath and judgment, punish every sin and every person who is characterized in an unbroken pattern of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. It's as simple as that. And we must remove ourselves from even the slightest hint that these things could by anybody's judgment characterize our life. That's his point. You say the wrath of God will come? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Every one of Paul's ethical lists, as we call them, Every one of these lists of both vices and virtues has within it the impending judgment upon those vices. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. I normally stop there and I say this. If you are in an unbroken pattern of deception, fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminacy, homosexuality, coveting, thievery, drunkenness, reviling, swindling, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what the Word of God says. I don't say that. That's what the Word of God says. You shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And such, thankfully, Paul says, were some of you. You see, this is not what characterizes you anymore. Why? Because you were washed. That is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit in bringing you to a place of faith and repentance. But you were sanctified. You were on that pilgrim's progress. You were on that road of sanctification. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. See, wrath will come upon those because they will be shut away from the kingdom of God. And believe me, beloved, that is wrath. That is wrath. Not to be a part of the kingdom of God is sheer wrath. Punishment. Galatians 5.21 gives a similar kind of list. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And you see the word Paul uses twice there? Forewarning. That's what I'm doing this morning. I am forewarning you. I am saying, please don't be characterized by these things because if you are, then you shall not inherit the kingdom of God and the wrath of God will abide upon you. Ephesians 5.5 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't do it. Don't do it. And if you are characterized as the new man in Christ, if it rears its ugly head at any point, kill it. Put it to death. Mortify it. Do whatever you can to make sure that that is not a part of your life to any degree. Romans chapter 1, verse 27, And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. <coughs> verse 30, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. That's wrath. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They want you to join in with their wickedness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. And you say to me, passage after passage, you are reading to us, it is written to Christians. Yes, 
written to Christians. But Paul is not so foolish to understand that in his writing, he is writing to only Christians. He is writing to those also who may think they are Christians, who may think that they have a relationship to Jesus Christ. But he says, I warn you, I solemnly warn you, please don't be involved in these things. And you say, what is wrath? It is God's holy anger against sin and the judgment that follows. Please, don't misunderstand. Christians are not characterized by these things. But some people who think they are Christians are characterized by those things, and that is exactly who he's writing to. There is an inevitable cause and effect relationship between sin and God's eventual punishment of it. And you say, well, what about Christians? If this isn't characteristic of me, and if I do sometimes sin in these ways, how do I right myself of it? The response, because you have been translated into a new realm of existence, you fall on your face before a holy God, you ask Him in a confession and repentant way to wash you of these things in your daily existence. You confess your sins to Him. You seek His forgiveness. You hold yourself accountable with others. You read your Bible. You pray. You ask God to cut away these things from you so that you can be seen as such a marked difference from the world. And believe me, if you pray that prayer sincerely, God will answer it. God will answer. And Paul says... There is, by the way, one other motivation as we close for you to put to death all of these vices. And what is it? Verse 7. And in them, in those vices, you also once walked because you were living in them. And that is unmistakable language. He says, listen, you should put to death all of those earthly things, all of those vices from your mind, from your body, from your existence, because it used to characterize you and it doesn't anymore. And so when those sins creep up upon you, when you think of those things, when you do those things, remember you were delivered out of them. Remember I told you, Paul never gives us a command that he not also already tells us the basis for deliverance. He says, you've got to put them to death because it's not a part of your lifestyle anymore. It's not a part of the characteristic nature of your living. God's wrath will come upon them, so you don't want to be characterized by them, and you once walked in them, but now you don't. Now you don't. You also once practiced these things, is another way we could say it. Such was your former behavior when you were living under their power, when you spent your life that way. It's indicative now that you've been translated out of it, so don't walk in it. It's logical. It makes sense. That, this is what doesn't make sense. I've been translated out of that realm. That's why my life is an unbroken pattern of sin. That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense whatsoever. If you have had a broken pattern of sin in your life, then you won't be characterized by that anymore. And when it does appear, kill it. Cut it off. 
Your own former conduct was marked by these same sins and you used to live in that way. But now, since you don't live that way any longer, kill any remaining vestige of sin that appears in your life. That's his whole point. The great theologian B.B. Warfield says this, the exhortation, that is, to put to death those earthly members, is simply given to an actual life consonant with our change of state. In other words, live up to who you are. Be what you are. It is an exhortation to us to be in life real citizens of the heavenly kingdom to which we have been transferred. To do the duties and enter in into the responsibilities of our new citizenship. End quote. Great statement. Live up to who you are. If this is who you are, then you must live like it. And I don't know how many times I can say that in this series because that is the entire point. The point is, be what you are. Live out the reality of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Do we diligently mortify these deeds? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is self-worship. Does it characterize us? Or are we on a new path? Is it indicative of our nature, of our life, and if it isn't, we must examine. And I trust as we go through the very positive nature of love, of compassion, of patience, of humility, you will see not only the negative side of those things which you are to kill, but the positive side of those things which you are to put on. And beloved, if that is true in our fellowship, believe me, we're going to be such a difference that the world is not going to know what to say. And that's going to be right where we want them. Let's pray together. Father, those things which mark out the world are the very things which you have delivered us from. And we praise you for that. All of the things that we were constantly thinking of and pursuing and being preoccupied with, you have taken those very things away from us. As the song says, you've broken the the debt of canceled sin against us. You, you've taken us out of that realm and we thank you and praise you for that. And yet at the same time, we know the battle is not yet over because those things which used to characterize us sometimes comes back into our life, either in our thinking or our actions. And it is there that we must be most diligent to kill, to mortify, to put away from us that we can be such a marked contrast to the world so that our testimony for you would be those deeds of righteousness which will glorify you. That's our prayer. That's our desire. And Lord, even when it isn't our desire, you make it our desire. Do whatever you must in our lives to make it true so that we can glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.